Well, this morning, I'm excited to begin a new study with you through one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, and that is the book of First Thessalonians. So please take your Bible there with me, and we're just going to look at the first verse and do some background into this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to this church there in Thessalonica. One of the highlights of my year is on the day of my birth, the boy's birthday, I take them out for breakfast at a restaurant of their choosing, and they can pick out anything they want for breakfast. So sometimes that puts us at Julie's. Sometimes that takes us down to Nicolet, down in the pier. Sometimes it's just a fast food restaurant like a Hardee's or McDonald's. Or often, Quick Trip and, and their donuts is, is something that the boys like. And, and, and it gives me an opportunity just to catch up with them and find out how things are going in life. And there's a familiar conversation that I have with them on their birthdays. I find myself often retelling the story of the day that they were born. And, and that goes into, uh, this is where I was when I heard that your mom uh, was going to the hospital. This is what I did when I heard that. And, and when we got to the hospital, this is how long we were there. This is what mom and dad were doing while we were waiting for you to come. And, and if there's some sort of drama that took place during the delivery, I'll tell them that. And then following the delivery, um, here's who came and visited and then the, the younger boys, more so than the older boys, but this is what happened the first time that your, your brothers saw you when they came in the room. And, and then here's who else visited. And then this is what it was like the day that we, we brought you home. And I'm just wanting them to know that their day that they were born made a major impact on my life and, and Melody's life as well. I think there's something about learning the origins of stuff whether it's the origins of a city, a company, or a church. And so what we're going to do today is find out the birth, the details surrounding the birth of this little church there in Thessalonica. So look with me at the first verse of this great little book. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Father, as we get started today, I thank you for your word to us. That this is a letter that was not only written to a first century church, but it also applies to us today. And while you are addressing issues in the real lives of the church back then, you are going to be speaking to us about the issues of our own heart, our own families, and our own church family as we work through this book together. So now I pray that you would just help us to to grab a hold of the significance of this letter and this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am strapped this morning with a challenging task. And and that is to do an introduction to a letter. Because I think if my tendency would be, let's just just launch out and let's cover chapter 1 here of 1 Thessalonians. 
but I don't think that would be fair. I think in order to do this book right, we need to spend at least one message offering the background of this book, have one foot in 1 Thessalonians, and then another foot in the book of Acts to be able to tell and understand the story of how this church was birthed, how it came into being. And the reason I say it is a challenge is because I can remember a professor at seminary who once taught us He said to these young preachers in the classroom, of which I was one of them, he says, men, it is a sin to be boring. And I've listened to a lot of introductions to the first book here, to the Thessalonians, and I think I've heard a lot of people sinning in their preaching. And I don't want to be guilty of being boring today and sinning. So what I want to do is just provide an introduction to this book so that we can really launch into the first chapter next Sunday. So let's keep our finger here, but let's go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, and we'll get a sense of how this story started. Now, if you're new to the Bible, we are really glad that you are here. Let me give an overview of the Bible real quick. The Bible is comprised of two major portions. The first is called the Old Testament, And that was written before the life and ministry of Jesus. The second section of the Bible is what is called the New Testament. And that was written after the life and ministry of Jesus. The first four books in this New Testament are called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all of these tell of the life and ministry of Jesus. And they all end with Jesus' death and his resurrection. And just before he ascends and goes back to heaven, he gathers his students, his followers, we call them disciples, and he says, you have observed my life. I have preached this message that men and women are sinners and that they can have a relationship with God if they would trust in my death on the cross for their sins. Now go and proclaim this message to the ends of the earth. And now the fifth book of the New Testament is called the book of Acts. And it is the acts of these students, the acts of these apostles, as they go out and carry this message, as far as they know, to the ends of the earth. And there's two primary leaders there in the book of Acts. There's one whose name is Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, And he proclaimed this message to primarily the Jews. And then there's a second leader by the name of Paul who carries this message of Jesus dying on the cross for the forgiveness of sins to what are called non-Jews or Gentiles. So the book of Acts, the one that I've asked you to turn to today, is a, a book of history of the church. It spans about 35 years, and it tells the story of how these Christians would go and proclaim how you can have your sins forgiven and enter into a relationship with God. And so this is what would take place. Someone like Paul would would go and be passionate about entering into a city, and he would go to a house of worship. It was called a synagogue. It was a place where the Jews gathered, and he would proclaim the message of Jesus forgiving people's sins. Some of them received that message and some of them did not. But those who did, they would form a community of believers that would be called the church. And then he would raise up local leaders 
train them, we call that disciple them, so that they could become leaders, and then he would go on to another city. And he would do the same thing, and he would go on to another city. And so sometimes there would be a controversy, a problem that would arise in one of these churches. And maybe it had to do with teaching. Maybe it had to do with, uh, with the way someone was behaving within the church. And so someone would send word to Paul, and then he would write a letter back to them. And these letters are called epistles. And so some of these letters we don't know anything about, but some of these letters are actually inspired. That is, God took them, he, he enabled Paul to write his very word, and we have those letters here in our New Testament, and one of those letters is the book of 1 Thessalonians. He wrote to the church there in Thessalonica. So let's get, a, let's get an understanding here of where this church came from. I'm actually having you back up to Acts chapter 15 because it is possible today that you think as you look around this morning or maybe you're viewing online or listening a little bit late and you're thinking of the church, you know, these are all people comprised of clean, domesticated, people that don't know what real world is like or real problems are like. Uh, maybe you heard or watched some of this interview of, of Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle just recently and and hearing them speak about the suffering and, and the loneliness that they have experienced as they've had this million-dollar expense account and, and living there in a castle with servants. And many of us would say, are you even living in the real world? How can you relate to what we are going through? And maybe you think that way about the church or about Christians. But what we find here is that the church is made up of people just like you. So as we look here in, in Acts chapter 15, we see that Paul had a really good friend by the name of Barnabas. And just like maybe you've experienced, they have some conflict. Look with me at verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So we've gone out once and we've gone out and proclaimed this message of the forgiveness that God offers through the death of Jesus. Some of these churches have been established. Let's go back and visit. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And so you see here in the early stages, you have two of the prominent leaders here of the church, one by the name of Paul and the other by the name of Barnabas, and they have what the Bible calls a sharp disagreement. Is that possible that that can take place in a church? Yes, these are two type A driven personalities that are passionate and they, they think differently about a situation. There was a man named Mark and he was with the mission team at one time, but he abandoned them. And Paul said, I am not taking that guy because he went home to his mom last time. We need people that are dependable. So they split. But what we need to understand is that Barnabas was the one who mentored and discipled Paul. 
So this was, this was a very meaningful friendship to Paul. And this sometimes happens in ministry. And so then we see, if you look on the back of your outline, you will see a map. And you'll see this second missionary journey that Paul is on. On the bottom right-hand corner of that map, you'll see Jerusalem. And then you're going to see an arrow that shoots up north. And you'll see it makes its way westward to a region that's written in all caps and brown called Galatia. And as you make your way northwest there, they're there in Galatia. And then in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here is this vision that he receives. Come to Macedonia, and you'll see that there's a sea going northwest on your map and an area in brown, all caps, Macedonia, that is modern-day Greece, or that is modern-day Europe. So this is a call to go to Europe to preach the gospel there. So they do that. And, and the first stop is a city called Philippi. Again, they're going there to share this good news, this gospel message for others to hear. Let me just skip to verse 14 of chapter 16. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Listen to this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So they meet there, this fashion designer named Lydia. And as they are sharing this good news about how she can have her sins forgiven, God opens her heart, she has understanding, and she becomes the first believer, the first follower of Jesus there in Philippi. And if we read a little bit further, as they are continuing to share this message, there's this young lady that has a demon within her. She's possessed, but she also has this skill of fortune-telling. And Paul is tired of this, this young lady speaking out, so he cast this demon out of her. Now, now, she was a cash cow for her owners. These men had, had sold her the skill and, and had gained some, some wealth by doing this, so they were upset with Paul that he cast this demon out of her. And so they caused a little bit of a riot there in Acts chapter 16. Look with me at verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now at this point, if I am Silas, I'm saying to Paul, now tell me again about that dream you had. Are you sure that you heard this man in your dream right? Is it possible that what he was actually saying is, do not come to Macedonia? 
No, Paul had understood him very clearly. Come, share this message within us. And so sometimes when we obey God, we meet resistance. And in this case, it was physical resistance where they were getting the stuff pounded out of them. And so there they are in the jail. And the verses that follow, we see that God sends an earthquake. And that earthquake opens the doors of the jail cell and they go free. And they are able to share the gospel again to the jailer, to the guard. And he becomes a follower of Jesus, not only him, but his entire family, and they get baptized. And so we see a forming of a church there in Philippi. But the resistance surfaces again, and they chase him out of Philippi. So now we get to Acts chapter 17, and this is the birth of of the church that we're talking about here in our letter, it is a church in Thessalonica. Look with me at Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So let me just give you a little history of Thessalonica. This was a city that was established in 315 B.C. You've heard of Alexander the Great, He had an officer by the name of Cassander. And Cassander had a wife whose name was Thessalonike. And so he named a city after his wife. Now men, top that for your next anniversary or birthday or Valentine's Day. And that is how we got the name Thessalonike. Today, uh, Thessalonike or Thessalonica has a population, I was just looking yesterday, of a 315,000. In the first century, it had a population of about 200,000. And if you see on your map, it is a very strategic city. It's, it's a port town right on the water, but it also had one of the Roman roads that traveled through it. So there was a lot of commerce, a lot of trade, and a lot of business that took place in Thessalonica. And in terms of culture, religious culture, it was one of pluralism. That means that there were many different religions that were practiced. One Bible teacher uh, by the name of Gene Green said, the Thessalonians were afloat in a sea of great religious pluralism and confusion. And it would be a day just like ours, where there are many different religions being practiced. But what will happen when this gospel message collides with this pluralism. Something has to give. And so they did what they always did, Paul and Silas. They found a house of worship, a Jewish synagogue. And in verse 2 it says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So this is a pattern that we see throughout the early church. Paul would go to a gathering of people, often to a synagogue, and there he would open up the Scriptures. Here's some wonderful words here. It says there in verse 2 that he reasoned with them. This is a great word where we get this concept of dialogue. As he would talk to them, there was a, a question and answer exchange. Not only this, 
we would see in verse 3, this word explain. In the Greek, it means he would open to them the understanding of the Scripture. And then it says in verse 3 that he proved to them. This is the idea of just laying beside one truth after another so that they could understand what the Scriptures are saying. And what was he referring to in these Scriptures? He was pointing it back to Jesus. It says there in verse 3, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this is Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So he would have explained to them creation. He would explain to them how they had sinned. All man and woman had sinned. Maybe he would have shared that when they sinned, how God provided skins to clothe Adam and Eve. And so blood was shed even after the first sin. And maybe he would have drawn a thread from that truth all the way through the Old Testament to the sacrifices. When man and women sinned, there was blood sacrifices. Animals were killed for men and women to realize that their sin was awful in the sight of God. And then maybe he would have drawn that thread to say, do you remember those blood sacrifices? There was one ultimate sacrifice made on your behalf when Jesus shed his blood. Now, when the gospel is shared, so often what we see here in the Bible and we see in our day that there are two different responses. One is there's conversion. And that's what we see here in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So there were some that were Jews there in the synagogue and says, I believe in this Jesus. There was also some that were not Jews, but they were Greeks, and they said, I believe in this Jesus. I want this forgiveness of my sins. And then it says, there were not a few of the leading women. It could be that these were wives of officers, wives of captains, wives of council members, and these were influential families, and they heard this gospel message, and they said, I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to become a follower of Jesus. Not only were there some conversions, but often when the gospel is shared, there is also conflict. So we see in verse 5, but the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Paul and Silas were staying with a man by the name of Jason. And so they they said, "You're, you're housing this guy? Let's bring him out and let's beat him up too. Verse 6 says, And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason also received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And let's be clear, loved ones, that the message that was being proclaimed by Paul and Silas was not just some accommodating message that say, you want to just live in your sin? You want to pursue idolatry? You want to just have fun in life, but not, but not follow Jesus? That is not the message that we have for you. It is not like a portfolio where this is everything you have in your life, and you just want to add forgiveness of sins like checking off a box. The message that was proclaimed to them is that there is a king, and his name is Jesus. 
And we are his subjects, and we are to follow Jesus. And this is what brought this city in an uproar. Well, the Bible tells us then in verses 8 and 9 that they are chased out of the city. Sound familiar? So we go on this chapter a little bit more, and they go about 100 miles to another city called Berea. They preach the message there. Guess what happens? The people from Thessalonica chase them out of Berea as well. But I wanted you just to see this in verse 14 of chapter 17. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Paul was being chased out, but he said, listen, there's some believers. There's some new believers up there in Thessalonica. You stay here and let's see that God would establish a church. So the Bible tells us that Paul would go to Athens. We see that in verse 16. And what does he do while he is waiting to meet up with Silas and Timothy? He preaches the gospel. And at the end of chapter 17, verse 32, it says, Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. People were not really willing to listen to that message. Some said, hey, we'll hear you again about this. Then we get to chapter 18. Paul goes on to another city. It's Corinth, and there he goes, and he preaches the gospel there. And then just look with me at verse 5 of chapter 18. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. So Paul is now going to hear a report of what has taken place in this new church there in Thessalonica. Let me ask you a question. Has there been a time recently... Where, where you are doing everything that you know that you are supposed to be doing, but it doesn't seem like you're getting any traction in life. Maybe, maybe you are reading your Bible. You're getting up and you're a part of our Read Through the Bible uh, program that we're doing as a church, and you've kind of hit a, a stall. Like, yeah, I'm taking it in, but it's not like I'm getting this freshness of hearing from God. Yes, I am praying. I, I'm praying every day. And I'm asking for God's help, but I'm kind of going through a lull right now. Or maybe in your marriage, as best you know, as a husband, as a wife, I am honoring and I'm loving my spouse. But, you know, we're just kind of, we're just kind of there right now. And, and as best you know, I'm raising my, my son, my daughters. In the ways of God, we're disciplining them when we ought to. But, you know, I'm telling them to pick up their clothes I'm telling them to put their laundry away. I'm telling them to put their dishes away. I'm asking them, why is this toothpaste in the sink here? I'm I'm doing the same thing over and over again, and it doesn't seem like I'm getting anywhere. And then I go to work, and I pour myself into work. I I do my very best that I possibly can, but, but it doesn't seem like I'm really having much of a difference there either. And then you get a text, a call a note, a visit, where someone comes to you and says, you know when you did this, you know when you said this, I just want you to know that that made a massive difference in my life. And the reason I took so much time in detailing what Paul, what his ministry was like, of a conflict with Barnabas, of going down and getting beat up in Philippi, of getting chased out of Thessalonica, then chased out of Berea, standing before the people of Athens and have them making fun of him for for the message of Jesus, is just to express to you how much of a breath of fresh air it would have been 
for Paul to hear that the church in Thessalonica had took. And, and after three short Sabbaths of going in there and preach, they had a viable church. That would have been like injecting courage into your veins, injecting determination and life and joy. And it's like, yes, this is making a difference. Yes, I'm going to continue to persevere and continue on with this ministry, even though there's so much hard work and so much controversies that surround me. Yes, thank you. They're, they're getting this. And this is what it would have been like for them. I'm wondering if we, as we kind of meander our way through this birth of this church, would God lead you to do something like that this week? I mean, think about your own life. Who, who has made a real big difference in your life? Maybe the Lord would lead you to write them a letter, an email, a text. Pay them a visit and say, I just want you to know that, that what you did, your example, those words had a big-time impact on my life. A couple of years ago, I was reading a book on encouragement. And, and as I was reading it, I was thinking of a, of a teacher in fifth grade, Cobb Cook Elementary School in northern Minnesota, Mr. Elmer Smith. Man, I hadn't thought about that guy in decades. But as I was reading it, I thought, you know, I'm going to reach out to that guy. Fortunately, Google was right there at my fingertips, and I typed in Elmer Smith. And would you know I found him? And I called him, and his wife answered. And uh, I said, you're not going to remember me. But way back in whatever, 1980s, I was in your fifth grade class. And I want you to know that you were my favorite teacher and you, you had an impact on my life. And to tell you the truth, he didn't remember me. Um, he remembered a classmate of mine that played in the NHL, but he didn't remember me. <laughs> and I don't blame him. I was very, very forgettable. I'm very forgettable. But um, there was more joy, I think, in me doing that than maybe in, in him receiving that. And maybe, maybe the Lord would lead you to do that sometime this week. So there's some of the background to this church of Thessalonica. This would have been a sweet spot for Paul. Man, this was a church. Of all the hardship I was going through, this was a church that got it. So now let's just go back to that one verse that we read at the beginning, and then we'll just close up our passage here, okay? I'll get this here again. Let's read that again. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So he is writing this letter to them. Timothy and Silas had provided a report and, and just with an overflow of encouragement, he is now going to write a letter back to them. And here is the miracle of this letter, is that this letter is inspired by the, by the Spirit of God. And it's not only a letter to this first century church, but it's also a letter to us. And we're going to realize that this letter is just as living to us as it was to the original recipients. The first thing we see here is that the gospel shines through imperfect people. You see, the authors here are Paul, 
Silvanus, and Timothy. Uh, Does anyone know what the name Paul means? Small. That's right. That's right. At one time, he was named Saul. But now his name is Paul. And I want to believe that there's, there's a reason for that. God tends to use small people. And I don't mean that small in stature. I just mean small that are absolutely dependent on him. It was said of Paul, not from the Bible, but from someone that, that assumed lived during his time and knew him. This was his physical description. Paul was a man of small of stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting, and the nose somewhat hooked. There was nothing about Paul that was saying, now that guy is a leader. He was small in stature, small in appearance. But this is whom God uses in ministry. It's the people that are aware of their weaknesses and despite those, depend fully on God. Chuck Swindoll, a pastor in his little intro to 1 Thessalonians, offers a clever little slant on this. He says, imagine that Paul was being interviewed on TV. It might sound like this. We're thrilled to have with us today the Apostle Paul, a man who probably needs no introduction. He's the Apostle of Apostles, a church-planting entrepreneur who has founded thriving ministries all over Europe, an expert in healthy marriage and family relationships, and an author of numerous best-selling books, and a sought-after speaker whose message has inspired millions. And when Paul was given an opportunity to speak, he may have said something like this, I'm the last and least of the apostles. Not even worthy of the title. If you ask me, I'm no church-planting opportuneur, whatever that is. In fact, I, could have done, I couldn't have done any of it without my co-laborers at my side. And I probably have broken more ministerial leadership rules than all of them put together. And I don't know where you get that marriage and family expert thing. I'm not even married, and I prefer the single life. As far as authoring numerous books, I almost always have had help. I wrote letters, not books. And if somebody made money off them, it sure wasn't me. And if that thing about being sought after speaker, well, my preaching has got me kicked out of town and beaten and arrested and stoned. In fact, I've been called unimpressive and contemptible in my speech. Sir, I don't know who you're introducing, but it doesn't sound like me. First thing, as we see here, is God uses imperfect people. This gospel goes forth through imperfect people. Sylvanius is another word for Silas. And this word means forest or woods. And, and I think he would have been a northeastern Wisconsin kind of guy. In his free time, you'd find him at Fleet Farm or Cabela's. He was new. He was Paul's new right-hand man. And what about this Timothy? We read about Timothy in other places in the New Testament. He didn't have a father that was a believer. He had to follow his mom and his grandma's example. I hear this frequently. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up with an example of a dad that loved his wife, a dad that loved the Lord or, or trained up us in the family. I don't have that sort of an example. 
Neither did Timothy. And yet he is a part of this team. God will bring men around and say, we'll fill in the gap here. So God uses imperfect people to share this gospel. One other thing I think we ought to see here is we see a plurality, don't we? Who do you think actually wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians? Paul did. Then why would he include Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy? I think he wanted the people to see that when they arrived, it was as if that was an extension of Paul and his ministry. Listen, there is no way in the world that Paul could have planted all these churches and wrote all these letters if he relied only on himself. He went to a place, equipped leaders, and he went to another place, equipped leaders, and he went to another place and equipped leaders. It was a plurality of leadership. The second thing we see here in this this verse 1 is is not only that God uses imperfect people, but secondly, the gospel produces communities of called-out followers of Jesus. You see there, it says in verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When a person becomes a follower of Jesus and has their sins forgiven, they then are a part of a community. The word church means called out. And we will see from this letter that Paul is urging the, the Christians there in Thessalonica to be called out of worldliness. Idolatry was a big problem there, so Paul is going to say, I'm calling you out of that lifestyle. Uh, sexual promiscuity was another big issue, and he's going to say, this is God's will, that you abstain from that. I'm calling you out. So this business of being a Christian and living it out in isolation is nowhere to be found in the Bible. We are called out of the world and called into a mission with Jesus. The gospel produces communities of called out followers of Jesus. And then finally, the gospel enables the church to live godly. He, he concludes this first verse by saying, Grace to you and peace. We are saved. We are received the forgiveness through grace. Jesus died in our place. It's a gift that has been handed to us. We must receive it. But not only that, but we need this grace to be able to live as a Christian And we receive peace through the gospel and that we are no longer an enemy of God. But we also need his peace with our circumstances, particularly this church in Thessalonica where they're experiencing so many hardships. This is a letter that is going to be an encouragement for us to read. In fact, I would say to you, if you are not currently in a reading program, I would urge you for the next 30 days to take 1 Thessalonians and read it once a day. I think you'd be surprised at how much you retain from this wonderful little book. It is a book that is written to new Christians. It is a book that deals with some basic theology, mainly Jesus' second coming. And then it deals with some issues that are going on within the church related to sexual immorality as well as people that are not honoring their leaders, and even some lazy people that are not working and providing for their family. I believe it will be a joy for us to look through this book together. The title of this message, it just speaks about how the gospel changes people's lives. 
And, and, and if you're with us here at Highland Crest, you're like, Chad, you say this stuff every Sunday, and I think that's okay. We, we ought to emphasize this one message. But here's something that you've heard me say, and I just want to end with it this morning, is that in a couple of weeks, we're going to do something that's going to be a little bit different during the 9 o'clock Bible study hour. I want to encourage us from junior high all the way up to senior adults to join here in the auditorium for some training called the Three Circles of Evangelism. Why are we doing that? To emphasize sharing the gospel. We see the effects of what the gospel has when it is shared. I'll give you seven different reasons why we're going to do this. Ready? The first is love. We are called to love our neighbors. And yes, we can offer love by mowing their grass, by by going to the store for them, by helping them out in in a vehicle or helping them out putting shingles on the roof. But the most loving thing we can do is by sharing the message of the gospel with them, that they can have their sins forgiven. The second reason I want to emphasize in having this three circles of evangelism class is clarity, or we'll just call it clear doctrine. If I handed out a sheet of paper this morning, I says, what is the main message of the Bible? What is the gospel? I believe many of you would answer that accurately, but not all of us. So we can have six consecutive Sundays of just going over what the gospel is, I believe we'll be a stronger church. And some might say, well, Chad, what if we have some guests that come during this Bible study hour? What will we do with them? Well, we will allow them to hear the gospel and even share the gospel. I don't think there's anything in our church constitution that forbids someone from getting saved during the Bible study hour. Here's the third reason I want to do this evangelism course. It's prayer. I believe you and I, if you're a member here, we want to be a church of prayer. And this particular curriculum has us start each class with what is called focused prayer. where We're going to take some time and we're going to be praying for people that we want to share this message of forgiveness with. This will be more of a prayer meeting on Sundays. Here's a fourth reason. I'm going to use the word fellowship. I mean relationships. I believe when we come together and you can sit with your own Bible study group, if your class is over here, you could sit together. If you're junior high, you could sit together. And if you're a senior class, you could sit together. But we're going to have a chance to do something a little bit different. There's only about a 10-minute video of training, and most of the other time is actually practicing with one another. We're going to actually have a chance to visit and, and talk while we do this. I believe our relationships will be strengthened during these six weeks. I'll give you a fifth reason, and that is what I'm just going to call maturity. I know this from my life, and I think I know it from your life as well, that when you step out and you share the gospel with another person, you grow in your maturity. You, you step out and you face your fears, and you become more of a Christian. That leads me to a sixth reason, and that is joy. I I want you to have joy in your Christian life. And we have joy when we obey. And we have joy when we share the gospel. Uh, I didn't ask for permission to do this, but I hope it's okay. Uh, There's a a couple of men that I get with. And and we've been emphasizing the value of going out and sharing the gospel. and, And we're saying, hey, let's work on this. And one of the guys earlier this week had an opportunity to do that. 
And he was sending a text to all of us, and he was elated at that opportunity. And we got to share in the joy of doing that. Let me give you the last one then. And that's just, I just, I'll just use the word risk. You know, sometimes it's just helpful for us just to take a little risk and do something different. Just to break up how we are always doing things. As best I know, we've never done anything like this before. Sometimes it's good to have a change for change's sake. And just to try something different. I'll give you an example. Just seven days ago, we did something, as best I know, we've never done before. And we had 31 round tables in this room with, with chairs surrounding them, and we had a meal together. I think that worked out pretty good, didn't it? Well, can we try this too? Let's just give it a go. And if it flops, it flops. But at least we're willing to try something different. And, and I, I think it would be valuable for us to say, let's just focus on being trained to share the gospel together. So we're actually going to kick that off. Are you ready for this? On Resurrection Sunday. What? Don't you know that Resurrection Sunday is about chocolate bunnies and, and, and eggs and, and new dresses and new outfits? Actually, it's about Jesus' resurrection and going out and sharing that message with others. So what, what better Sunday to do that? Well, you've listened and there's only about half of you that are asleep. So thank you for the, the, re- the remaining of you that stayed awake during this introduction to this book. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this story of the birth of the church of Thessalonica. It just puts on display for us what happens when the gospel is shared. And, and we, not, we not only get a chance just to hear about this, to see what takes place... But in the coming weeks, there will be this emphasis of being trained and putting this into practice and praying for this and, and actually celebrating when this does take place. So we, we pray for that. And Lord, as we think about how much of a breath of fresh air this church of Thessalonica was to Paul, help us to be that this week to another person. I pray that if that's a letter, if that's a visit, if that's a text, that we would not miss the opportunity to encourage a person that might be just in the grind of life right now, wondering, is it worth it? Worth it to continue to press on like this? May we, may we be a blessing to them and encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen.